It's four o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. This week, starring the world's most famous producer, Mr. Ken Calais. Yeah! <laughs> and thank you, fake band. Thank you, fake audience. Welcome, real audience. Good to see you guys. Everybody's still alive and kicking. Ken, normally I would reach out and shake my guest's hand. Right. But yeah. <laughs> There you go. I actually heard somebody saying, no more elbow bumps. I, I don't know. Anyway, um, thank you all for turning out uh, in the middle of this virus. And Ken, thank you for doing the show because everybody, uh, and yesterday, our governor, you and I are over the age limit. We're supposed to be sequestered at home. So I I pray that Governor Newsom isn't watching this episode because... See, this is an interesting time. People are getting fake ideas to be older. <laughs> No, I'm over sixty-five. Younger. younger. No, it'd be older. No, I'm. I'm, I'm gonna. I. I need to stay home. The, you know, I can't work this today. Right. Yeah. Oh, there you go. I got gotcha. you. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, um, I had Ken at the road rally. I don't know how many months ago now. Like probably five months ago, last November, and uh, he just killed it. He rocked it. Uh, people loved it. The two of us sat on stage for about two hours i think and we mm -hmm. played stuff from uh ken is a, a grammy winning producer i should say that for those of you who don't know obviously you've read the email are we gonna play music today we're not gonna play music today because i'm worried about um worried about youtube taking it down or a copyright strike or Lindsay being ticked off that we played a solo with a bad note or something so well, i heard that if you play your own cd that you bought you can play it in front of anybody on youtube well it just that's the rules i bought my cd i can play it well, okay. But whether did you, you buy the CD? <laughs> no, you made the yeah. CD. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, you know, Ken won uh, Record of the Year Grammy for that. Uh, he co-produced with um, Richard Dashett and and the band. And uh, but I want to give you a little history about him before we get into the making of Tusk, which is what we're going to talk about. By the way, Ken, uh, yeah. <laughs> Ken's second book, oh, so hard to do this backwards, there we go, Get Tusked, okay? By the way, let's talk about this right now, let's out your dog, that if you've ever wondered whose dog that is on the cover, I mean, who makes it to the cover of a Fleetwood Mac album? It was your dog Scooter, right? Yeah, it was my dog, and there was no living with him afterwards, <laughs> as soon as I, he realized that, that he's been exploited, you know? <laughs> Uh, did did he get like an extra good can of dog food that night or anything? Oh yeah, I always did. Uh, you love this dog, right? I mean, he yeah. was truly your best friend at the time. Best friend, he went everywhere with me. And he was in the studio for the entire record of Rumors and the entire record of Tusk, right? Right. And then, uh, is, is it true that Stevie Nicks was actually pissed off and put a hex on your dog because he made it to the album cover? Well, I don't know if it's true, but that's what she told me. Well, then it's got to be true. <laughs> I put a hex on your stupid dog, Ken. <laughs> Stevie, I didn't pick the cover. And how did it end up with that shot getting on the cover? Well, they, these the my the adolescent band, the guy members in the band, were always <laughs> making jokes about Tusk. You know, like Tusk, like a man, you know. Yeah. And like, so I used to my dog would get bored to me, and I would put my foot out and like piss him off. Right? Yeah. And he would start wrestling with my foot. And, and this photographer that was there, Peter Baird, oh, yeah. who was a big photographer in um, 
in Africa saw the canine, her the scooter's canines, and said, "That's there you go." And tusk. I mean, I you know, if I wanted that picture, to, that we would have never happened. It would have never right. happened. I was so surprised. How did the other band members feel about uh, Scooter making it onto the? And Stevie cover? was pissed about it, but I think the guys went, "Yeah, cool." <laughs> Oh no! I touch my face. I'm going straight to hell. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, it's up there. <laughs> Ariana just said, "Don't forget the camera's up there." Um, I keep looking at our image on my laptop, so sorry if I forget you guys. Anyway, hello everybody in the chat room. So, anyway, let's get back to Ken's bio. So, um, he uh, let's see, where is that? Focus on the record. Okay, so Ken grew up in San Jose, California, not that far from here, all things considered. He thought about going to law school, um, had an internship. Boy, what a decision you made. Had an internship at a law firm and then decided to bug out and head down to L.A. because he really wanted to be a songwriter. So he moved to L.A. and then got a job at a place called Wally Hyder Studios. Wally Hyder Recording? Or right. Recording. And it was a preeminent studio, like a, a top five studio in the country. Very, very well thought of at the time. And I was trying to get jobs at... at at RCA and Capital, yeah. what I considered were the big-time studios. And so and, how did you end up every, getting a job working well, I for went, I went and applied at all those places. Yeah. And all those places said, you're missing the boat, Calais. You need to go to Wally Hyder's. Really? And I said, why? Hey, I never heard of Wally Hyder's. He says, yeah, but Wally Hyder's records all, records live bands. Oh. Who do you, who, he said, who do you think records live albums? Yeah. Only the top bands. So if you go to Hyder's, you're going to be working with the top bands. There you go. So and went, you did. Uh, and I went in and got, I, they, they fired somebody else to hire me. Wow. <laughs> did that guy put a hex on you? No, no. <laughs> so but, what was life like in the early days of your career at, at working at Wally's? Uh, I mean, you know, did you start out sweeping floors, wrapping my cables, that sort of stuff? I, I swept for, floors, I uh, wrapped my cables, I put uh, took the uh, tape off of the uh, cables and... Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, I just did it all the time. I, when I, at nighttime, I would go into the studio and practice. Right. So one day, I remember Wally called me and says, I, I had talked to um, the um, Crossy Stills and Nash producer. Right. And I said, can I, can I practice on one of your on Country Girl from the Crossy Stills and Nash and Young album? Yeah. And so for some reason, he said, okay. Wow. And I actually made a copy of the tape. I touched his master. I could have ruined it. Yeah. I don't tell anybody they should do that. But anyway, Wally found out, and he calls me and says, Calais, you're pushing too hard. You're pushing too hard. <laughs> but that's kind of, I was just, in, you know, insatiable for playing with music. Who wouldn't be? I mean, you know, I, I had a similar career arc, as, as you know, and that's why we've bonded, I think, so much, is we both relate to that time period in working in studios like that. But... So what happened, uh, what were some of the acts that you worked with? Uh, I'm assuming that you went through the typical arc of, uh, you know, like gopher and then assistant engineer, and then you start to pick up the occasional gig as a first engineer, and then it kind of blossoms from there? Kind of, but I accelerated. I, my first, the first band I worked with was Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And the second oh. one was, uh, um, um, uh, wait a minute, Rick Paconin and uh, War. Oh, okay. And so I worked with War, and I'm sitting there. I was there when they wrote that War did that song. Cisco Kid? Yeah. That one? Okay. So I was there when they recorded that one. I was there when Crosby Nash did 
their solo album. I did that. I started doing comedy albums. I, you know, and then and I, George Martin. George Martin was famous for doing comedy albums before he did the Beatles. He? Yeah, interesting. So I accelerated right away, and then we started doing live albums, and and I I was because they had a remote unit, right? Wally Hyder had, had probably trucks. the preeminent remote truck right. in the business. Yeah. So we had two trucks, and I went out and learned. Whatever I mean, I knew what every microphone was good for. Yeah. So I could do it on live or, or whatever. So. Um. How did you end up working with Fleetwood Mac? I, if I remember correctly, either I think it was in the Making Rumors book that you mentioned that you were like aware of them, but not a fan. They weren't. They were a band that had been around for a while, but they never got really big until Lindsay and Stevie joined the group. Is that a, a fair right. statement? Right. So how did you end up uh, meeting them and working with them? Well, they, they as I was saying, that uh, Wally Hyders did live, live remotes and so uh, live recording. So I got a call one day that Fleetwood Mac had recorded uh, the King Biscuit Flower Hour. Right. And they needed somebody to mix the show down. And I, and I said to the girl, I, and I was, by then I was the, probably the most popular engineer there. Okay. And, or up, up and coming anyway. And they I said, Fleetwood Mac? No, nah, I don't want to do them. <laughs> Never heard of them. And my friend Biff Dawes said, no, you got to do it. Right. So he says, you can go buy the record. And so I went in and, uh, on a Saturday morning. I went in and mixed the, mixed the radio show of King Biscuit Flower Hour. Uh, for those of you who don't know, King Biscuit Flower Hour was the preeminent show of its type. It, it was a, a, they featured a live band every week. Right. Right. And that was like, if you got on that show, you were something. Yeah, what would be another show like that? Nothing <laughs> that I could think of. Um, but yeah, you're, so I went and mixed the song. One of the songs was Rhiannon. Wow. And, and of course, it was a Saturday afternoon, and I was mixing. There was no pressure. It was just a stupid radio show. So I was mixing whatever, da-da-da-da. And I, I was really good on that console. And, and Stevie was just twirling and loving the mix that I was doing. So And I was so relaxed, which I, I bring that up twice because I think that was kind of one of the keys that uh, and why why I got the gig. Yeah. So and we finished the show. The next day they said, geez, Ken, that was so great. But we have to go tomorrow to do the radio single mix of Rhiannon at the studio we're going to be recording our next album at yeah. over at, uh, called The Record Plant. So they had already booked this engineer who was supposed to mix the... Uh, the the radio single and that was at record plant uh, Sausalito no it was record, record plant, plant LA. LA okay so um, a guy named Kelly Katera was supposed to do the mix and they said sorry Ken we already got this thing scheduled and so they go over and mix that night I figured easy come easy go yeah that night I got a call from Richard Dashett he said it went horribly wrong it <laughs> was awful uh, poor Kelly sorry Kelly if you're watching the show we feel for you we get it. Yeah, and I'm sure what happened is they were all, they were all over him. Probably, right? what are you doing? Right. Ken didn't do that. What do you do? And he was just, <laughs> oh, man. he was just poor guy. And, and no, I knowing how they can be, Fleetwood Mac can be so intense. Yeah. You know, I can feel sorry for him. But and they came back to for me to do it, and it was like on the next day they asked me to come back on a Monday. I came back in and and to mix the radio single. And did you go to the record player? You did it at Wally. I did it at Wally Hyders. Okay. And, and I still was not under any pressure. It was like, okay, I already did this once. Let's do it again. Right. So then they said, hey, how about, why don't you come with us to uh, Sausalito to do the next record? So if you hadn't gone to Sausalito, who would have engineered 
uh, the Rumors record. Dashit was their live sound guy, right? So he right. was like their the trusted guy they always wanted in the room. They knew he was kind of quality control. Right, or something. and they were going to have Richard do it by himself. Right, but Richard was panicking. He told me later on, he was yeah. panicking. He's like, no, 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 no. Let's, let's Ken really knows what he's doing. So was so it Richard, Richard was really good at the live stuff, but just not that familiar with. Uh, Richard's a really good ear. He's you know he he could tell somebody else bring up the kick and he right. could do that a little bit, but he wasn't really good at getting into the patch chords and oh okay and, and down in the weeds and so he didn't he didn't want to be doing that. He felt comfortable with me. Right. And our relationship on that Saturday was had perfected really well. So, hey, you guys got along uh, through all the kind of tumult and commotion that was going on yeah he and I became best friends yeah you know we're still close friends that's cool um when so you went to Sausalito you did the rumors record which uh, we've already covered um, and we don't have time to cover it in this show and, and get to Tusk but I'm gonna synopsize which is uh Lindsay and Stevie started gaining power in the band because um, the White Album, which had Rhiannon on it, started really taking off kind of midway through rumors. Is that a fair statement? Right. Well, and, and Lindsay and Stevie really got acclimated to be inside Fleetwood Mac. So, you know, Stevie started doing those amazing vocals on Rhiannon. Yeah. I mean, that, that got her the gig for sure. Right. And then Lindsay's amazing guitar solos. And, um, and the whole band kind of woke up when they realized... The talent of Stevie and Lindsay, the untapped reservoir yeah. of talent. So Mick, Mick found he could play his drums harder, and Lindsay would push back, and John would push, and they would all, they would. There was a, such a dynamic. That's cool. Range of the of the band that they, they really found it out. I think not during the Fleetwood Mac album, the White album. Right. Uh, they found that out on the tour supporting that record. Uh, they they had like nine months to tour the support the record makes sense people always say that the road really hones the whole deal right it gave them so much freedom but if you listen to the white album the white album was produced by this guy keith olsen right who just passed on monday sadly he did we could go monday yeah i didn't know that i've yeah. golfed with him oh i'm so yeah. sorry to hear that but he was a he was he was a very is he was an elegant engineer his sounds yeah. were beautiful and if you listen to the white album they're very round and full and Mine are, I think, beautiful too. But I have I put lots of points on it. Yeah. So it's kind of edgy. Oh uh, yeah. Which Rum I think. Rumors is just one of the greatest sounding records. I told you yeah. I, I was, uh, I was listening to it in the run up to the road rally in my office at night, and I would literally get a lump in my throat and teary eyed listening to it, going, I know what Ken did here. I know why he did this. You know, it's kind of like that brotherhood of engineers mm -hmm. when especially if you're from the same era. Like, I couldn't do that same kind of interpretation with a, an engineer from today's records. Right. But, you know, you were a couple of years ahead of me, but still the same era. And I was just like, I wanted to call you up at night and go, hey, Ken, you did this because, right? And you'd go, yep. <laughs> you know? yeah. But anyway, um, so... And there's a pride to being an engineer when you when you say, somebody comes in and you say, I'm going to hit play on this. Yeah. And... And you know what it's going to sound like when it comes out of your, your sounds come out of your speakers, you know, and you turn it up a little bit and you just go, and it's, 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 it's like making the per perfect cake or something. It's like, right. you know, or the perfect daughter or son. When uh, there's no such thing. <laughs> I've got four daughters and you're all perfect, but... Um 
you can always change the record or alter the mix. You, you, your children, you can only change to an extent, I think. You know, right. you can, they come out baked. You can certainly influence, but that's a whole other episode. Um, when so you finished making uh, the rumors record, and well, like halfway or two thirds of the way through, um, they called you in, and you thought they were going to fire you, but instead, tell everybody what happened. Yeah, they called us in. Uh, they they came in and they said, "Calais, dash it out of the room. Let's talk. We're going to talk to you." But, and they were trying to pretend to be really gruff. And, and this was Mick and John, I'm Mick guessing. Mick and John, and Lindsay was already out there. Okay. So it was already set up. So. <laughs> So they went, can I dash it? You're fired. Oh, you finished in your biz, you're fired. <laughs> and Richard and I looked at each other, and we've been working 120 hours every week nonstop. Yeah. And so we just laughed. Like, we looked at each other and then started <laughs> laughing. Like, you got you. Anyway, then they said, no, okay, we're, you know, we're, you've been doing, doing such a good job. We're going to give you a raise. We're going to make you producers on the record, co-producers on the record. Wow. So Richard looked at me and says, uh, Cutlass, do you know what this means? Oh, that was your nickname was Cutlass, yeah. right? I said, no. Well, he says, it means we're rich. <laughs> I said, you know, I thought, yeah, well, I've worked on records before. You know, we might we might make a couple nickels. You know, we might, we might make a little money, but, you know, you, the record's going to have to really sell a lot to do to make you any money. And it did forty-five million right now. Unbelievable, forty-five million on yeah. a single record. That'll never happen again in our industry. No. Um, wow. What I mean, I think it could. You know, I keep say, saying to people, "This is why I wrote these kind of books like this, because it's kind of an engineer's book, a producer's book to know how you can maximize the the sound and the quality of the record and the the, the uh, interesting in, interesting enough." But. Just the numbers alone, you could make a great record, and everything is kind of so factionalized. You know, there's so much more music available, and and it's not just the top forty in the Billboard Hot 100. I don't think any particular act. I mean, we've seen some really big acts. I mean, Billie Eilish is probably the hottest thing out there now. I don't think she'll hit numbers anything close to that. No, but you look at Adele. Adele was on the charts for a long time. There were still yeah. charts though when she broke. Right. Well, I mean, there's still charts now, but there, you know, I mean, radio is more. But she important. was popular, which is forever, right? Yeah. Every single song was a single, and and but I think maybe she put out a record, a CD that we're seeing. I think the big problem is nobody puts out. They put singles out now. Right. So how long do you think the single is going to stay on the record? It's competing with other records, whatever's out there. So. So how many years has um, rumors? been around now it was made in 77 or 70 70s? came out 77 yeah so we're talking 43 years yeah wow who could have thought you know i mean there's no way you could have known but you knew that you were making a great record right you guys i didn't i knew that we made a great sounding record but we didn't know did you know that the songs were also great and did you know that the not just the engineering but the production was I, great i knew the whole that, i knew that we loved them yeah you know, I knew that the record company, we played it for the record company, and it completely blew everybody away. I, I remember Richard and I went into Warner Brothers. I put everything on. I had a Revox 2-track, and yeah. I carried my Revox in and plugged it in, tested out the speakers, and I remember when I hit the play, they just, it was they were silent. Who'd you play for? Like Mo Austin, oh, Lenny yeah, Warrenker? Right. <laughs> the boys? Yeah, the boys. Wow. 
but, but when I played it for uh, everybody, friends and family, right after right after we mixed it at Christmas, my best friend said in front of everybody, says, I'm sorry, you guys wasted your time. I don't hear a single. I don't hear a hit. Oh, man. And we were like literally devastated. We, Are you still rubbing that in his face? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's whenever, what best friends Whenever he says he doesn't like something, I order twice. Right, yeah. exactly. Okay, so now you've got this newfound position, fame, and power. And, and I mean, frankly, I was, you know, 3,000 miles away from you in the other coast, as I mentioned on stage at the road rally. Dueling consoles. Yeah, but, but all of us, there was a brotherhood. You and I mm -hmm. never met, but still, you know, uh, we could be on a session in Miami. At the end of the night, everybody would end up in the mastering room because they had great monitors in that room, and we would listen to that record and just go wow i wonder how they got the bass sound or read an interview and recording engineer producer magazine and go oh that's how they did mm -hmm. so we were all trading licks there was this brotherhood right. of that upper five percent maybe who were fortunate and privileged to to work in studios like criteria or wally's and uh you know Nobody was jealous of anybody. It, it was strange. It was like every we were rooting for you three thousand miles away, although we didn't know you. Right. And I remember I met Glenn Johns. Yeah. He came over and he had just done the Eagles, and we were talking about how did you get this sound and how did you get that. And I, at that point, I was still a nobody, but I was just in the conversation. But they were talking about how great American snare sounds were, and and. And they said that they had to, the only way they could create that snare sound was to have to slow the tape down. I said, no, we didn't. We we just, you know, loosen the loosen the bottom head and the snares a little bit. You know, yeah. Put some put some paper towel on there. Well, we had to slow the tape down. You know, <laughs> bloody hell. <laughs> oh my gosh. But how they would they they across the sea they were doing the same thing, just you know, a different way. Yeah. yeah, going for the same sounds. Um, so now when after that record was done and let's move on to the recording of tusk um so lindsay has more power even now because the record has sold a gazillion copies the the band is on you know the band has power over the label lindsay has power over the band is that a fair statement right and you guys built a studio uh, just for making the next record so the next rumors Right. So, but Lindsay didn't want to make, if I remember correctly, said, I don't want to make a part two or a sequel to Rumors, right? right. And what was his goal? What did he want to accomplish? He, did, he didn't really know. That was the, the, the funny thing about it. That was the sad thing about it. He didn't know what he wanted to do, but he knew his fans, he thought, wouldn't, would wanted him to be grunge, wanted to be more edgy, more dirt. And yeah. So he didn't know what that meant. So like the first day, and I talk about it in the book, first day I'm recording him and, and I'm getting the sounds and he used to let me, you know, really make good sounds. And so he just gave me all the time in the world and we changed mics. And he says, okay, you ready? I said, yeah, let's, let's put this down. He goes, okay, before we hit record, turn all your knobs 180 degrees. Did right. you think he was joking? I did at first. I said, what? And I said, no, no, do it really. So I, I turned him, and guitar went just like this, all muffled, because I had put a lot of points on it. Yeah. And I said, he said, now hit record. I said, wait a minute, I can't record this like this. <laughs> I said, I, I need something more to go on. What, what are you thinking? And I remember I asked him, I said, are you thinking that 
Are you saying you want this this next record to be more emphasis on the bottom end? He goes, uh, yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. Was he just being manic and contrary, or did he actually, like, was he searching for something, but he just hadn't seen what it was? He, he, he didn't know what it was. He, I mean, I read accounts that he, he wanted to push himself into such foreign territory that his, he hoped he had the genius to get him out of it. Okay. So, so he was just doing things like, I mean, he would bring guitar, uh, guitars recorded at home. He started recording at home. He so, set up a, a legit studio at home, so, right? He got so, like an MCI multi-track or right. something, and so we had no input. So, and he would bring in distorted vocals and guitars and just, and he would push it, make it distort more, make it distort more. Were you guys all petrified? I mean, you meaning you and the founding members of the band being um, Mick, John, and Chris, that, I mean, were you guys all looking at each other out of the corner of your eyes going, holy crap, what do we do? Yeah, I mean, that 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 day he, had, he went and told me to turn the knobs the other way. He came into the room, he had cut all his hair off. You know, he had that kind of afro. Yeah. And he had snipped it all off and it was just chopped off. And he cut all his, his pants up and, and they were... They were falling apart, and and he, his his girlfriend, who was really into cocaine, yeah, she had him. She said, "You need to be more, you know, more." She she started having him more mascara. So, Interesting. So he would start to walk around with. He was always sucking his cheeks in, trying but, to look like a male model. You know, I don't blue know. steel. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so you know, we at the end of the so we used to show up for work every day for three hundred and sixty six days making the Tusk album, not knowing what the hell was going to happen, whether he was going to be in a good mood. And he couldn't really... Sometimes we would record the same song for 10 hours where he would have us slow the tape down and then speed it up and then he would sing a slowed-down vocal and a sped-up vocal. But later on when I was writing this, we, we talked to... We realized that had, had it been more mature, yeah. we probably would have come in and said, look, Lindsay, tell us what you're doing. And, you know, you don't have to, we don't have to be enemies. And, you know, we'll, we'll help you be, Who you're whatever, to be whatever you want to do. But he respected you. I, I got that sense from reading both books, that he always did like you and respected your work. Um, so I think was, he started getting aggravated at some point. Because I, and I don't know, he may have been right, that I was trying to make a beautiful sound. Right. You know. But he loved the sounds. I mean, and and I and I, in his defense, he made this his song sound so horrible, in my opinion. Yeah. So I, I had to work really hard to to bring them back to, so they weren't such a contrast, on I'm, the record. But the girls' songs, were incredible. So and he, you mentioned in the book, you said that when he worked with Stevie, that he almost like w would drop that whole manic side and mm -hmm. go back to the Lindsay and Stevie that they were when they were a couple, even before when they joined the mm -hmm. band. And it was almost, for lack of a better word, like nurturing, wanting to really help her bring her stuff to fruition yeah. without trying to destroy it or break it down and make it crazy like He didn't do stuff. any grunge guitars. Listen to A Beautiful Child of hers. Yeah. You know, it's such a beautiful, that's I think one of the prettiest sounds and recordings that we ever did. I mean, we have some fancy tricks and guitars are just so ethereal and uh, or Sarah he just did some great some great work yeah it, it's started. hard to believe the same guy could be part of those two things but it, right. it I found that to be very interesting when I was reading this book 
that he was able to turn it off, turn off the manic part and go back to being the guy that he was. So maybe, I'm not a shrink, just letting you know, but maybe it was bipolar, but he was able to control it, you know, turn it on and off at a time. So that's bipolar people, I think, can't control, you know, when the bad stuff happens. I don't know. Anyway, um, I did notice something very fascinating today. What did I do with that sheet? I was looking at the track list. It was a double album, four sides, just so for those of you who've never... you got to get this record. It's, it's a masterpiece of a different sort, but it is a masterpiece. It's just not like Rumors, which he didn't want. Right. But if you listen to the song titles, The Ledge, these are all songs that, that Lindsay wrote. The Ledge, um, What Makes You Think You're the One, um, Not That Funny, um, that's enough for me. Uh, walk a thin line. I mean, those are all titles that, if you wanted to associate Tusk. them with his, yeah, oh yeah, Tusk with with his manic state throughout mm -hmm. the making of this record, you could say, wow, you know, he was almost like crying for help or trying to get attention or something. Um, and I love the some of those his songs. Um, what makes you think you're the one? Or walk a thin line. There's some beautiful melodies in there, and he sustains these these towering vocals in the song and uh, and so eventually he I guess he let me he let me bury some of the dirty stuff and I mean we had to some of it had to be dirty but but you know we, we got into a situation where the girl songs were mostly slow so yeah. when you're putting together a, 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 an album a running order of an album you kind of want to have a little bit of everything so that you can keep the tone of the record kind of poppy moving yeah. along so and this was we had we had we were forced to move some of Lindsay's songs up because they were the fast ones and then it made the contradiction between the the pretty songs and like what's the first first song and second song uh, over and over followed by the ledge right uh, followed by think about me which was a Chris McVie song uh, followed by save me a place which was Lindsay didn't you say in the book um, Save Me a Place, you always kind of felt that that was Lindsay saying, save me a place at the table or as part of the family, that it was his way of almost saying he was sorry. Like, don't forget me. Uh, I don't know. I, something was mentioned somewhere about him. He strikes me, who the hell knows? Maybe it was the drugs. Maybe he was manic. I don't know. But he comes across... Uh, in the book as a, a troubled guy and kind of a lonely guy. He already had this family and you guys were a family and he right. he wanted to be part of it but yet he was acting out like a kid that uh, is a He didn't know how to be a part of it. Yeah. He would come in and, and if everybody was laughing they wouldn't be laughing in 10 <laughs> seconds after he got in. Wow. That's no fun. So That's like, no way well, to make a record. Because Lindsay had a point where he just said when they started getting the, his grunge he said Look, he says, I, you know, I really want to do this my way. Yeah. And if you don't let me do it my way, I quit. So what would have happened? That's actually one of the questions I wrote for the show today was, what would have happened if he had quit? Um, could you conjecture what that might have looked like? Well, we probably would have, similar to what happened this time. Yeah. Right, that he quit. We probably would have had to find another guitar player and 
I mean, it would have been a big adjustment. Would uh, do you think Stevie would have stayed with the band if Lindsay left? Oh yeah. And so let's talk about the other members. I don't want to make this the uh, Lindsay Buckingham hour, but um, let's. What would if you had to describe? Stevie in a sentence what was she like during the making or as a person in general and the make during the making of this record she was a, a very light-hearted happy person she was spiritual she was uh, um, kooky in some ways um, but she thought she was some witch you know she was very deep yeah I found out that beautiful child was it was about her having an affair with an older man and like there's one line in there that I always wondered what it meant. She, she says, you know, you say it'll be harder in the morning, but whatever it is. And I was going, does she mean what I think she means? <laughs> but I said, nah. <laughs> but she was a special girl. Um, what about Christine? Uh, I love the fact that you always uh, refer to her as having a Dame Edna laugh. Right? You can right. hear it as you're reading the pages. But what was Christine's Christine was personality? A, she was a, she was like a sailor. Yeah, <laughs> she could out drink you, out smoke you, and out swear you. But she was really just down to earth and very stable. Very stable. She could be, she could say things that could really hurt your feelings. I remember at one time I was, I kind of had a nervous twitch, and when when I I might walk into the studio, I might go, and she'd go, "Damn it, Calais! I hate it when people mindlessly whistle." <laughs> you know, and I didn't even realize I was doing it. Like, oh yeah. And now I have seen it out with other people doing it too. And like, I know, so I could say something to them. Yeah. But she could see right through. Wow. So. Uh, and she got along with all the other band members, right? Yeah, she was great. And, she and was a, she was the middle of oh, the middle ground. She got along with Lindsey well. And, even when he was going through this manic stuff, was she okay with him? And did she? Well, no. I mean, she had, then she was started dating Dennis Wilson, right? And one so of she the was Beach in Boys, love. So, yeah. Right? So she was in love, and and so whenever Lindsay would be crazy, she would took that as an opportunity to go be with Dennis. Okay. So. And, and how about John McVie? How would you describe oh, him? Let me tell you one story about well, sure. Christine. She was. I remember the owner of the village. Was a guy named Jordy Hormel. Right. He was the he was a keyboard player, and he he married Leslie Caron in the '60s. I didn't know that. And he's uh, he was heir to uh, Hormel Hams. Right. So he was a trust fund baby, and had he had all his money. He had a mansion on Sunset Boulevard, down by Will Rogers Park. Okay. And and he let his hair grow, and he let his he just was he wore funky clothes, and we came over to his mansion one day when we were trying to design Studio D. And she says, Jody, what the fuck are you doing? Look at you. You look like a slob. Oh, my God. <laughs> and Jody's helping us build a city. And we're going, Chris, what are you doing? She goes, no, no for fuck's sake, you know, like dressing nicely and, you know, with an accent, a cigarette in her hand. And and that's just how she did it. She's like, she said, wow. I'm going to tell you how I feel. So... She and John had been divorced already for a few years by right. the time you were making right. this record. Were they, deep down inside, were they still friends in any way, shape, or form? I think they, you know, I think they were, that they certainly tolerated each other. Yeah. But I think John was always wishing he could get back. He was always saying something like, come on back and 
or you know I'm gonna come over tonight and but meanwhile he, he was a little bit famous for dating some attractive younger ladies at the time wasn't he right so yeah, John had his his girlfriend with him yeah and Christine became best friends with her girlfriend that's uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> um, how about uh, let's see who haven't I talked about oh Mick um, I perceive him from everything in both books that um, he's the dad he was the dad um, and the guys manage um, Fleetwood Mac the senior members of the band actually had a management company called Penguin right Right, so they manage their own career so how did he how did the dad in him deal with Lindsay being this petulant little a-hole well he was uh, Mick was scared to death that he would lose that he would lose Lindsay because Mick only makes money if he's playing in a band yeah. And if they if they broke up, he would because he didn't write anything. Right, he didn't write anything exactly, but he was uh, he didn't know where to go. But Mick's dad was a a colonel in the Air Force, very proper. Wow. So Mick is always very proper and uh, you know stands tall and uh, and uh, but in, you can throw a touch of booze in there and cocaine, and then it's a little proper drunk, you know. <laughs> but didn't he ever like? pull Lindsay out, you know, into the airlock between the, the studio and the control room and go, snap out of it, dude. What the hell is your problem? Or he was afraid that would piss him off. And well, he, he did tell him in a, in a graceful way, I, I found out later, yeah. after the album, that he said, the name Fleetwood Mac and the, and the image can, t- can only take so much. You can push it so far, and then the fans are going to bail out. And so I think he just said, speaking for the band, speaking for the kind of sound, we we want don't push it i was very astute of him right, uh, yeah. on a business level to recognize the the band's brand because mm-hmm. it had already been through probably three changes they'd already made like i don't know 10 or 11 albums by that point sure. and, and peter green and all that history and they were very adaptable yeah you know to whatever the, the lead guitar player and the lead singer were doing but, and the songs yeah I guess they always the constant was Christine's songs, which mm-hmm. uh, and if you listen, historically her songs all sound like they come out of Christine McVie. The, right. You know she doesn't, um, she changes with the times, but never got too nutty. And actually, I would love to interview her sometime. Um, let's see, I've actually written some questions. I think I have committed many of them to memory. Um, Oh, I want to go back to uh, the studio that you guys had built because from an engineer-producer's perspective, that's the ultimate, is having uh, spend as much money as you want, every piece of gear and every room design thing you could possibly think of, you can have. Mm-hmm. How did that feel? <laughs> well, that was ter- tremendous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's... I made, a, uh, I made a, a ceiling that was movable, and it was shaped in a curve yeah and so we could open up the louvers or 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 close so it's either reflective or absorptive right. and i had a switch down here could I, so i could uh, adjust it um yeah, it was great we we chose every we chose the console we chose the Wait, uh, you had a neve 80 88 okay and that was kind of a, a debate for us because rumors was done mostly on an api which is very aggressive and not open sounding. Yeah. Where the Neve is, for instance, the API is built on American standards. So, mm-hmm. like, the EQs were 
um, um, 200 cycles, 400 cycles, 800 cycles, all multiples of of um, the decimal system. Right. Where the English consoles were musical, um, built on A2, so 220, 440, 880 cycles. So those were your EQ points. So you weren't, if you were boosting 880, you were boosting whatever note that is. Right. Uh, you the, weren't bo- boosting the A, on, second octave A, yeah. Right. Um, so we were d- debating whether we thought that would give us more of a rounder sound, a fuller sound, and we could com- get a compromise. Had you ever used the Neve prior to the one in D? We had in s- different studios. South City had it. Oh, that's right. Um, so did you like the, the result that you got uh, when when the room was done and you first started cutting tracks for Tusk? Were you like, wow, this actually works? It's everything that we'd hoped for? Yeah, yeah. It was nice and round, and, and but I knew still how to make it aggressive. But remember, we were going with a darker sound for that record. Yeah. So. But not initially, right? Initially, you didn't have a plan to necessarily go dark? Or, or no. It was just Lindsay's input, let's not make the sequel to, to Rumors. Right. So let's talk a little more engineering stuff. Um, drum kit, what's your favorite kick drum mic? Or do you remember what you actually used on that record for the I kick? think I used a Sennheiser 441 or okay. a... Um, or, or a 57 really i think there may be a 421 sometimes depends on what what how his kick was tuned um you are the the single biggest fan of the sennheiser 441 we've talked about this i think not in front of people before but i could never make that i I used it because of you Uh, i i would literally read about you using it in rep or wherever I tried so hard to make that microphone work, but I found it to be its kind of like the NS-10 of microphones. It was kind of flat and boring to me. It worked. I mean, it was a mm-hmm. fine microphone, but when you used it, it sounded like honey dripping from the speakers. Were you... What I, don't do you think I, wanted, I don't think I wanted it to be honey dripping. But it did. I mean, you used it on rumors, right? Right. Well, the magic was I, when I did Stevie's first vocal. Yeah, I, I lined up a bunch of mics, maybe ten mics. Wow! And that on a regular console where all of my inputs were open, and I just had her go down and sing in front of each mic. I say that because now you you normally have one input and you got to switch it, and you have to right. you can't just go through and hi 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 hi. <laughs> so engineers don't know how to do that anymore. But <laughs> but anyway, so Stevie went down, and when she hit the when she hit the Sennheiser, she just. So, you know, this is it. I sound amazing. And did you recognize it at that moment as well? Oh, yeah. Plus, when she said it sounded amazing, I had won the battle. Right. She's happy, I'm happy. So, yeah, she's happy, and she's going to sing more confidently. So it's like, why would I argue? Wow. And she did. She sung out, and she loved the sound, So, and it made her voice. The Sennheiser is a dynamic, so the closer you get to the, the capsule, the more bottom you build up. And it, it's funny. I mean, most people never think that something that works well on a kick drum could work on, on a female voice. I mean, mm-hmm. they seem like polar opposites. Um, what did you use on the snare? Oh, uh, AKG 451. And did you do top and bottom or just top? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and if you... I never found them. I was always worried about this thing being out of phase, you know? Yeah putting something on the bottom of it. Yeah, I was never a fan of the bottom mic, but I know a lot of guys back in our day right. did do that. And of course, they'd hit the phase button to solve the problem. But um, Yeah, but they never can hit it, correct it exactly. Right. Yeah, it, it can mitigate it, but it can't correct it. Right. 
So, so I would loosen, we would loosen the snares and loosen the bottom head and just use that 451 and crank the, crank the shit out of it and open it up. And Your snares always sounded great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's funny because I will say that on Rumors, the snares were great sounding and polite. They were really slick and mm-hmm. like a cultured pearl of a snare drum. And on Tusk, they were definitely edgier. Um, right. So there's there's no question that you were at some point either willingly or unwillingly at least on board with Lindsay's vision of you know darker and edgier. Right. Well, we learned we learned a lot. We learned about tuning on rumors. We tuned the drums every day. Mm-hmm. So because otherwise Mick was tuning it, and sometimes if he was hung over, we'd get a different <laughs> sound than the other days. And so we started started taking over the tuning. Did you tune them musically, like you know, like to a one four five or something, or did you tune them to the well, we the, just the root so they chords? sounded pleasing amongst themselves. Okay, but yeah. not necessarily to the song or no, even tune no. to the bass. Okay, basically tuning the the top head to make make it have an even tone, and then t- tuning the bottom head to be complementary. Richard Dashett, I give most of well, I give him all the credit for that. Okay, he went out and tuned it. That was, that was his, his thing. Yeah, and he would he would make them sound great, but. Later on on the task, we started doing these tricks, like, like you saw that, <laughs> right? <laughs> like we would put a, put a, a, as you call it, a tampon on there. Uh, uh, no, a feminine napkin. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> we would use a paper towel and put a, or and and put a piece of tape on it. So the yeah. paper towel, when you hit it, it would pop up Fly, on there yeah. and it would mute it down. Yep. I, I thought that was brilliant. For those of you who weren't at the road rally, didn't hear me talk about this. I came out to LA I think from Miami at the time and I needed a control room to edit something or resequence a record and they let me use Studio D at Village because these guys weren't there that day or that week or that month you were on a break or working at Lindsay's house whatever and I went in there of course the first thing I did was put down my briefcase and go out and look at where all the mics were and everything it was like heaven for me Um, because I admired your work so much and I'm looking at all this stuff and I remember Ken doesn't remember it being a feminine napkin I'm absolutely certain it It was like it wasn't we didn't we just wadded up some paper towels yeah and taped it and made made them taped them in such a way that they didn't come apart I remember seeing the double sticky tape like a panty liner would have not that I've ever actually used one myself just saying but um, in any case whatever it was and I remember there was it was like hinged with with some duct tape um, to the edge of the snare. Maybe this was Hernan's dirty work, or, or, fam- right. or you know, um, Hernan was second engineer. Be- yeah, bestowed to you guys from the village as the second engineer, but became your your buddy, your confidant, mm-hmm. and con- made real contributions. I think, right? Absolutely. So, and, and he, by the way, he co-authored this fine book. Hernan, if you're watching, we love you. Can't wait to meet you in person. I feel like I know you. Um, anyway, I remember looking at that snare drum and going, oh, my God. It, it was set up so that when you hit the snare, that uh, the feminine napkin, the paper towel, whatever it was, I think it had a quarter or a nickel on it to give it a little weight. So you hit the drum and it would go boop, boop. It was almost like a valve. Mm-hmm. Like it let it ring just for a split second and then shut it down rather than what everybody else was doing at the time was fully taping whatever damping material they had to, you know, maybe two of them or three of them on a drum, if it was like, especially like a floor tom. Um, What did you use on the toms, on the two rack toms for mics? Probably 421s. Interesting. 
Uh, it, the record... We would try different things in 87 sometimes. Yeah, they always sounded like condenser mics to me and not dynamics, right. just great sounding toms. Um, and what about the floor tom? Uh, um, 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 414? Yeah. No, no. Four... 441? Yeah. Really? Wait. No, the Neumann is that, I'm getting confused. Oh no, no. That's a little pencil forty. Oh, uh Neumann, um why can't I think of it? Um I wanna say four forty one, but that's No. Uh I can't think of it. I know what you mean. Yeah, it's like the size of your thumb and four inches long. Right. I can't think of it right now. I will. Um Let's talk about Christine's piano. Did you record with the lid up, the lid down? Well, I would record with the lid down when they were tracking. And did the band usually track as a unit, um, or did that happen less we often? Tracked, we tracked as a unit almost all the time. So how was that? But then we would replace most, most <laughs> of the things. <laughs> Which I found fascinating when I read um, Making Rumors, that you guys replaced virtually everything on the record, yet you maintained, retained the life and the spirit that mm -hmm. is so easily lost when you start replacing stuff that you guys that that's to me the single greatest accomplishment of, of your production skills combined with their playing skills is the fact that you maintained that joie de vie the spirit that comes through when a whole band plays in a room but you replaced everything you frankensteined it and still kept yeah, it yeah but it's not replace it like we didn't do it that way we yeah. we would cut the track with let's say Christine wanted to play a keyboard, yeah. so we would cut it with a rose, something she could play live in the room without right. worrying about leakage. And then we would replace it. We would add to it with a grand piano. Okay. So it would be a new grand piano part that she would play, and it would be isolated. How about... Or Lindsay would play an acoustic guitar, or he would play an electric guitar. And did you have problems with his electric bleeding into... The drums, for instance? Yeah, never, because we had these ISO booths. Oh, that's right. So we would put the amp in an ISO booth and then put a, a Leslie in an ISO booth and, and use it to generate effects, and then he would basically be playing direct into the into the, the board. So all if you went out to the room, all you heard was mixed drums. Um, w w did Mick have a light touch or a, a heavy touch? Well, he's got a really powerful touch on his drums. Except the kick drum, we always <laughs> called him Featherfoot. That's right, because <laughs> he would just he would his first kick drum hit would be hard, yeah, and then it would just he start as he started playing it would just diminish and he used to sing when he was playing the drums he would go ah 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 <laughs> and we would have to gate the gate the um, the singing yeah the drum mic <laughs> to cut that out. Um, what about the bass? Your bass sounds uh, on virtually every song are just amazing. And I know you and I have uh, privately discussed your direct box before, but I don't think we did it at the Red Rally. I would love to turn these guys on to it. Tell them about your direct box. Well, we had this direct box that a friend of mine, Larry Camara, at Wally Hyder's had built. It's called the Fat Box. And it was some sort of, he discovered uh, some sort of a FET, F-E-T, yeah. uh, trans transistor. Right, field effect transistor. Right. And he put that in, in he buried, he, he, he sunk it in epoxy so you, you couldn't see it, ever see it. Wow. Or it would break it, but we use these fat boxes 
all the time. And did you use it on stuff uh, like if you took Lindsay's guitar direct, you used it on that, or if you took Christine's oh, yeah. Rhodes, you used it on that? It just sounded open, more open than everything else did. So we would use the fat box with John and rarely used the amp. I remember the first time you and I hung out, I mentioned the fat box, and I said, yeah, I, I actually Googled it and found some for sale. They were like $600, and you went, where? i got to get one. Yeah. <laughs> I still haven't got it. Really? All right, I'll, I'll find one and send you a link to it. Um, man, was it John's fingers, John's basses, or the fat box? Your, your bass sounds were just impeccable. It's just EQ, you know. I mean, I think it's down to knowing where the EQ uh, needs to be on the bass. I remember hearing this, uh, the Beatles always had, you could always hear the Beatles bass. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, well, how can you do that? Because when I would try to add a lot of 50, 60 cycles, what I call bass, yeah. it, it wasn't there. But they would, and they could put the bass on the right, on left or right speaker, <laughs> but they, they used bass at 200 cycles, 200 or 400. They would just push that as it, that's the, that's the apparent base, and that right. gives you a, enough of the of the of the idea. So I would do some sort of combination of EQing at 200, 400, and maybe at 50 a little bit. Did you find it was easier to make the bass sound good when you're using the Neve console versus the API, or didn't make that much difference? Didn't make much difference. Um, uh, the Neve Transformers were pretty legendary, especially the 8068 Transformers mm -hmm. were pretty legendary for just making an engineer, you know, making their job easy, I guess. Yeah, I just think the low end is hard to deal with when, when it gets into a, a record, so. Did you ever um, mic his amp and take it direct, or it was always I direct? I always did that. Okay, and, and did you end up using any of the amp signal in the mix? Usually I would put the, the amp on track one, because that's the that's the edge track, and that's where you don't really want to put right. You just top end there. And eighty-eight percent of the time, we when we needed to um, cannibalize tracks for more tracks, we would just go over the bass. Right. Wow, this is so interesting. Um, let's talk about automation for a minute, because the kids today don't know anything about the automation from back in our day. Uh, nowadays. Everything is automated, and um, I'm assuming you guys had Studer tape machines, right, uh, on right. Tusk in Studio D. Um, were you locking up tape machines at that point? It was only on Rumors that you did it, right, at some point? No, we didn't do it at all on Rumors. Oh, we uh, did. We we did on Tusk only for, to, for the ability to uh, transfer important. Oh, tracks over to maintain the fidelity of stuff, right? Well, so basically, because they the band started as they started getting more inebriated, <laughs> and they would like to party. As, a, as a, in, later on, they would like to trend, uh, try stuff and party. And yeah, so we r realized that I wasn't going to stay there, and Richard wasn't going to stay there. So we uh, let the second engineer stay there. We put up the, the another reel of tape, and they they could, and which had them had them drums, bass, and the main stuff on it. And all the people could do their idiocy on the on the <laughs> spare tape. So that's the only reason we would lock it up. When, uh, did so you, nothing got erased. When your automation, uh, did you use automation when you mixed Tusk at all? Sure. And so it was Neve Automation. Um, flying faders invented yet? I don't 
They were. Okay. And but we decided that that automation is it'll rule you. Right. You have to rule it. It's for wussies. Yeah. So <laughs> like the first thing if you're mixing something I'm always a I was always a big believer in having three or four faders moving at the same time. Yeah. Because if if the if the drums come up, then the guitar maybe has to come up at the same time. And so so like in real life, if they were playing and the drums started playing louder, the keyboard player might start playing louder to be heard. Right. So all that dynamic. So and what I didn't like about automation, if you tried to do a single fader at a time, it was impossible. It's like looking at a, at a Monet through a <laughs> through a pinhole. You don't get the big picture. And, and the automation data was recorded, uh, at least on the MCI consoles I worked on at the time, was recorded on track 24, on track of the tape. Uh, well, that was, a, that was a tone. Yeah. That computer was guided. It was, on, it was recorded on a big old, we used to have a floppy disk. Oh, so disc. you actually had floppies on that. Right. Okay, wow. But okay. we learned to, to actually do the automation, and then, every, all, but it was all hands on deck. So I would I would give Richard might do the drums mm -hmm. and then and then John McBee I would give him a, a piano I would never give him his guitar his bass right and so Lindsay would get a, something else and so everybody would have to we had 24 faders and so we had to we all would mark the faders with a, uh, a china marker so right. we knew at the start point and then we all had moves we had the mutes to to all do and what we would do is we would continue doing that mixing with everybody making mistakes and okay you you know you that was stupid you need to put you forgot to put echo on the snare on the on the third snare hit. and so so and then once we got it that's one then we would we were always running automation but right. that's when we would oh. say it. so when we got the mix then we could refine certain things so you weren't building track by track like no, people frequently no, we do didn't with automation to, we didn't now. want to be a slave to it um, and let's talk about your mixing style because it, I find it very relatable and frankly I don't think there's enough of that style out there now. Um, you play the console like an instrument. Right. Um, describe that to, to the viewers. Um, well, I mean, I guess it's, it's you know, you've got to build a foundation. So usually when I start a mix, I, I pull, up, pull down all the faders and I look for what I call the heartbeat. Mm -hmm. What's the soul of the song? You know, and that's that's what you should s surround it around. If it's a vocal and a keyboard, or vocal and acoustic guitar, or something, you put those two things, and that's where the song comes in. And then you say, how much how much um, percussion do I need? And you put in the percussion. So it's just about you know everything has a place. So it's interesting. Uh, they, I mean, a lot of people back then would start with like the the bass kick and snare and then build everything around it. So you went for the soul, the heart of the song, be it right. a, a, an acoustic guitar and vocal and brought everything else up. Right. I mean, sometimes thing. you hear the acoustic nice. guitar and the vocal and it's nice and you put the bass in, oh, that's really nice with the bass like that. And you could say, well, we could, we could almost leave it like this. But okay, let's put a little bit of percussion in and you start building the rest of the stuff around it. And you, you got to keep that, the heartbeat going. Um, so. How much input did the band have on mixes? Um, they can, and I'm not talking about this band in particular, but I'm going to say generally that I always found that 
having the band in the control room during the setup of the mix, finding the initial balance, mm -hmm. was always a train wreck for me because you're listening to so many masters in the room and you're trying to please everybody that you please nobody. Uh, and this band in particular, having Lindsay, who was manic, and John and Mick, who were more than seasoned professionals. I mean, maybe the tightest kicked uh, drummer and bass player working in the industry at the time. Did they influence your mix, or did they leave you alone, let you do your thing? Well, I told them, I said, get out. And they did. I said, I said, you got to leave me alone until I call you in here. Okay. I said, do you want to hear sit there while I work on a bass for 10 minutes? No, 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 no. Right? They didn't want to do that either. Yeah. So just go away and let me find my spot. And they knew that worked. Right? So I would, I would, I would, sit, I would come out when I'm ready. Okay, I'm really got this point. I think it's really cool come listen and then they would all go that's horrible you know or whatever they would say but usually would you be deferential to the person who wrote the song if it was a stevie written song would you lean more on her take give her feedback more credence than other people in the band to try and please her because it was her song or did you stick with well, just audio you know yeah you would you would do something i mean i wasn't going to get fired but you know <laughs> if, Good I, boy, Ken. If, if i felt that she was wrong I might say, you know, I don't know, Stevie, but she would usually, she, they got to know me well enough. I said, you know, I really like your voice like this, and they and trust She goes, mm, well, I said, sometimes I might even say, just take th take it home. Here's a cassette. Take it home and listen to it. Let me know tomorrow. This leads me to the discussion of what the producer's role was back in the '70s versus what the producers are today. Which you know, producer today could be. The guy that comes up with the hi-hat beat is now a producer, or mm -hmm. um, who knows? I mean, it's it sliced and diced. To, but describe the producer's role generally, not in terms of Fleetwood Mac or this record, but in general, what was the producer's job back then? Well, I mean, it, my job was, and I always really respect if a musician can, if you're a well-rounded musician, you can play all the instruments. Yeah, I think that's the best way. That's the best producer. Uh, I can pick up a guitar and say, "No, I'm talking about this kind of a guitar part." Mm -hmm. So, but I couldn't do that. So, what I had to do is trust my ears and trust what feels good. And I would be that kind of guy, and they would hopefully what what I heard they liked, and normally they did. So, so I would just be kind of a, a logical guy. Let's why don't we why don't we work? And I used to tell them, you know, you won't come in, I don't care what you say, you won't come in tomorrow till at least 12 hours after you leave. So if we stay up till 3 in the morning, you're not coming to, into 3, that means the next day we're going to be going till 3 in the morning and you're not going to be coming in till at least 3. So we're going to be on a midnight schedule. Nobody really wanted that. So I could, I could kind of deal with logic. And you also had to keep this record that was going off the rails on the rails so you become um, kind of a manager a de facto manager within the walls of the studio you become a psychologist to them how hard was it for you to keep this record Tusk in particular on the rails because it sounds like any day it could have just gone to hell in a handbasket it was hard I mean Lindsay was definitely difficult and he was cranky and the trouble is he didn't know he was cranky he didn't know how to deal with things, and that's why I said I wish we had just all put our arms around him and said, "Let's come on, let let go," you know, and yeah. and let's find it. But but I, you know, it was my sound, so I was the kind of the sonic designer, and and 
ma- making all the sounds, and so I was protective of those sounds, which is why I said maybe I was, maybe Lindsay had some truth in what he was saying, that right. I was fighting him when he wanted to. Maybe if I said, yeah, let's just let's distort the speakers and everything, and you know. But I'm sure my hearing is not as good today because, because of that, right? He yeah. used to say, you know, he'd always he'd go over to the, if he found the volume knob all the way up, he'd just, turn it up, Callie! <laughs> like, you're not a man if you're not listening to it full blast. Um, when, when you would work with Stevie or Christine on songs that they wrote, and you were out of his manic mode, um, were you more in charge sonically for their stuff, and did you tend to favor working on their stuff because it was less manic? Or no, it was well, all... Oh, yeah. Yeah? I just like making really good-sounding stuff. You know, and I would have liked to have done more with Lindsay, but he, he always liked... He could never figure out... I would I could put delays on things, and, and you know, I'd use my stopwatch, and he'd go, how do you do that? <laughs> you know? And and he that, couldn't figure out the math? He, well, no. And, you know, back... They started doing the... The B- BPMs and BPM charts, and yeah, but you know, I just like to basically count it and say <laughs> okay. But anyway, he let me do a lot. Um, Richard was more of a psychologist, from what I gather, reading, having read both of the books. Now, could you have made both or either of these records uh, without his cycle, without his ability to be? I don't know, sometimes like, it seems like, what? Break the tension? Yeah, like you were the team captain, you kept stuff on the rails. I had a horrible sense of humor. He was, he was laughing all the time. He just, he could fall on the floor laughing over something he said. But, (laughs) but, and so he was, and and he had great ears. Yeah. So he complimented me well, and I would get the sound, and I would say, what do you think? And he'd go, and he'd reach over and click something, or sometimes I'd, I'd walk away and let him, Set up the drums, and then I would, then he would let me come in. That's nice that you guys had that trust in yeah, each other, because yeah. that's really what it comes down to. Is sometimes he'd get me in trouble, and then I'd, you know, we'd go over way over here, and then bring it back, and yeah. But well, we, I mean, I couldn't have done it without him. Um, tell me about uh, Hernan's role. Uh, this being uh, Hernan Rojas, the uh, co-author of said book, Get Tusked. Um, he's now back. He grew up in Chile, right? He grew up in Chile. And ended up in L.A. working at the Village Recorder, yeah, took, which anybody would give a fingertip to have that job. How does right. a kid from Chile get a job at the Village? He just had read. He went to school. Oh. Uh, he, he took a tramp steamer over. and uh, Wow. He want, he just really wanted to do it. So, um, But he was he was a good guy. He We used to make fun of him because he couldn't really speak English that well. But, uh, <laughs> but he, he fit right in. How, you know, that would be hard to fit in any band because it's a family in right. and of itself. But to not speak English that well and still become a member of this dysfunctional family, mm-hmm. wow. Good no, for he him. And then I, then I found out later he started dating Stevie secretly. Right. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, I think I might have asked you on stage, were you the only guy in the band that never had a romantic relationship with her? I don't know if I'm the only one, but I, <laughs> but I didn't have a romantic. Um, you met your wife Diane during the making of this record, did you I not? Did. Um, 
I remember you had a girlfriend named Cheryl that was your girlfriend during the making of Rumors. And, and right. tell us the story about how you met Diane. She was, uh, uh, she was the receptionist. At, at the village. At, at the, the village, yeah. Wow. So every day we'd come in, and then one, and then I started noticing Richard was, was hitting on her. Yeah. Like he and I used to do at, and when we were doing uh, mixing Rumors. There was a girl, Carol, that we'd sit out and, you know, sneak outside and talk to her <laughs> when we could. Anyway, but Lindsay, Lindsay um, picked Ended her up. Ended up with her, right. Right. But anyway, so yeah, Di was, Diane was uh, uh, at the reception's desk and she would, they would send her in and she would do fresh vegetables for us and, you know, vegetable plates and bring it in and, and so I started. You liked her vegetables. Did you know when you like first met her that she was the one? Oh yeah. I How told I told her boyfriend. I said, "What? How long have you guys been married?" 40, 40 years. Wow. I told her boyfriend. I said, "I'm I'm I'm in love with her. Just made one mistake. I'm all over that." <laughs> How did he react? He's kind of like, "What?" <laughs> did he also work at the studio? He was a musician. Okay. So. I, I, uh, boy, she really has a type, you know. I mean, uh, and ironic. I mean, obviously, in case you guys don't know, Ken is the proud dad of Colby. Um, and uh, Yeah, Colby Calais, same last name. And so Diane's, like, lived a life of, of music, being, you mm -hmm. know, married to you and having a daughter who, who's a, a huge star in her own right. Pretty cool. What do you guys talk about at the dinner table? Or what did you talk about when Colby still lived under your roof? Was it? Studio stuff? No. Really? No, we try to talk about normal things, you know. What's normal? Colby was a little <laughs> bit overweight and she was wanting to be, you know, going out and yeah. wear these sexy outfits and it's like, no, Colbs. <laughs> but she was she loved she loved singing all the time. She started playing xylophone and I got her keyboard, made her um, she hated lessons. Yeah. I told her Brad Pitt was gonna be teaching. Oh, really? So, <laughs> and she liked that, huh? Well, she took one lesson. Yeah. And then when she found <laughs> out it wasn't Brad Pitt. I tried the same trick on, on golf. Oh, really? I said, there's Brad Pitt's at the, same, at the golf course. Do you still golf? Yeah, a little bit. Because I, I suck, but I really love doing it, so we should go out and play a round of golf. Yeah. You know what I missed? Malibu Country Club. Did you ever play that course? I did. I love that place. I don't think they ever brought it back, right? It's uh, laying fallow now for years. They closed it down like five, six, seven years ago. Turned off the sprinklers, sent everybody home. I like the Westlake, uh, Westlake Golf Course right here. The one right off of... Uh, yeah. Um, really? It's so easy. It is. You play with three clubs, basically. Well, you could play, but I mean, they got water hazards and things like yeah, and I figure it's like anything else. And I figure once I once I hit scratch. Yeah, I mean I can never I can it, I, it always sticks <laughs> my head. So why should I just I shouldn't be playing anything harder than that until I can you know, shoot seventy two on it. I once hit a car uh, at the gas station. <laughs> I forget which. I think it's at the turn maybe, uh, right. the. Yeah, I, I hit a car, and I think I ended up giving that guy, like I think I had like $300 cash on me. I said, here, this has got to cover getting the dent, but broadsided the car in the gas station. I don't know how I did that. Hmm. Anyway, uh, I, I like that course. I played it, I don't know, a couple dozen times probably. Um, yeah, but let's play. 
Yeah, we should uh, once we can actually go out in the world again. Let's see how are we doing on time. Wow, only 15 or like 17 minutes left. Um, let me see if there's anything that I haven't covered. So what happens if we finish early? We just sit here and yeah, we just hang out. <laughs> no, we, we we would uh, take some questions from uh, the guys in the chat. We can do that. Just, Is anybody doing anything? I don't know. Are you guys awake in there? It says you guys suck. <laughs> no, that's not possible. Oh, book giveaway. They're reminding. We, yeah, we. what we're doing, though, is the person that puts the best question, and I will pester Ken to get him to answer the question, person who puts the best question in the comment area below the video um, over the next week. So you've got until next Monday, which will be the 23rd, and I will get him to, I actually, I didn't know if he had any of these laying around, so I ordered one from Amazon. It didn't come in today. I was going to bring mine with me um, to have you autograph it to, to give away. So autograph this one, and I'll reimburse your book. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, that's what we'll do, is whoever asks the best question, and then I will pester Ken and get him late at night to go into the comment section and type out a little answer for whatever that award-winning question is. Um, Tell us what the little Neumann is. KM84. Yep. <laughs> I always liked that mic. Yep. Um, I used it always for hi-hat. I used it on hi-hats. I used it on overheads on occasion. Um, loved it, like on a, a Fender Twin on some guitar sounds. Found that It was a really versatile mic. Mm -hmm. Had a sound, but not too much of a sound. Right. I used to like using a condenser and a dynamic. Yeah. On an amp, and you could put them out of phase, and then, and then slide them uh, back and forth until you get right, the the right you get the tone you want. It sounds like you used more room mics on Tusk than you did on um, on Rumors. It, was that by intent, or you happen to have? I mean, there's just stuff that sounds. For all I know, it could be delays. I don't know. There's just more. More stuff where you go, oh, that's interesting. I can hear a wall over there. Was, how did that come about? I think we did. I think we just, because well, we built the room, and the room sounded so good yeah. that we just liked it for a lot, but we used a lot of delays. I try not to use, I, I try to add, on that kind of vocal, I try to capture the vocal without much room on it so I can put whatever I want on it. Um, what's your favorite reverb? Uh, I mean, as far as, like, What's your go-to reverb device? Oh, Reverb One. Okay. Is that uh, Wave? I don't know who it is. Oh, nowadays. I'm talking about back then when you made this record. Back in the 70s, oh, did, EMT, were you a plate EMT, guy? EMT, or? EMT plate. Okay. Um, we, you know, we built, in the village, we built a we built the, a replica of the Capitol Chambers. Oh, that's right. We talked about this at the rally, but we should talk right. about it again because it's fascinating. Not that many people know what a live echo chamber is basically a reverberant room with really smooth, reflective walls, speaker on one end, microphone on the other. So you guys replicated the dimensions of the Capitol. I'm surprised they gave you the dimensions because that was well, kind I, of they, I was always using them. So we uh -huh. often we often uh, um, hired the Capitol Records to use their chamber their oh, number two okay. chamber or whatever right and we um back then you could uh, um, rent class a phone lines wow which would so you could patch in from across town right yeah because village had to be five to ten miles right, away from right. capital i thought that was amazing that you could just class a phone lines wow i don't know if you could still do that yeah probably 
Uh, yeah, I think you can. Um, but then so, we, we built a replica of it. Yeah. In, in the room, and so we could. Where where was the replica underground again? No, no, it was it was in the room. We had this huge wall, this the door like this. Yeah. The whole length of the of the chamber, and we could open it up and seal it. But we found that we could also open it up a little bit and play an acoustic guitar into it. Oh wow! And get real echo, not from right through a speaker, Re not recirculated. So, um, so you'd have Lindsay literally sit like four feet outside that door, right? And then just put the microphone where it would normally be on the guitar, but it would pick up the reverb from right. a few. Wow, that's kind so, of a, a luxury. And then when I went back to to the village after. 20 years or something, I went in there and I, they had all their mic stands and their music stands in the room. I, I said, what are you doing? I said, this is the Capitol Chamber replica. Oh, man. It is? So You know, I want to talk about your project um, with the record plant Sausalito, which I, I mean, I, I literally get a lump in my throat knowing that you're doing this. And before I got here, uh, or before you got here today, Nittany was telling me that you've closed the deal now, and you guys actually. So, tell everybody what you're doing with that place, which I just think is amazing. So the pl the place where we built built the foundation for Rumors Sausalito Record Plant is where after I recorded that the the, the radio mix of Rhiannon, yeah, I went up to Sausalito with my dog and lived with the band for four months, and then. We worked at the Sausalito record plant, and it was terrific. So, and it really has a vibe, and we, we recorded every track there, except uh, Chain. Okay. Um, but um, later on, a few years ago, uh, maybe 10 years ago, I, I started noticing that my favorite places were starting to be bulldozed, um, like um, Texas Opry House uh, was gone, disappeared. Wow. And uh, it, it became a computer center, and they paved the parking lot. And, and I went down to see Wally Hyder's, and Wally Hyder's Studio 4, the main room, and Studio 1 were now gone. And so I s said, well, when did this happen? You know, and I wish I could have done something about it. Yeah. So suddenly I, I accidentally stumbled across Sausalito Record Plant one day, and, and it, was, um, it was bankrupt. And it was locked up, and the bank owned it. And, so I started thinking about it, like, I need, I know, you know, maybe it's time I need to start giving back, and maybe I need to, to try to save this old, old girl. So since 2012, I've been trying to save her, and we just, last week, just signed the, closed the deal. Congratulations. It took me, we have 13 investors, and wow. uh, so now we're going to renovate it. We, we bought a ton of equipment from a uh, another recording studio that was going out of business. Yeah, and he told me he got the stuff from Fantasy. I, I actually did an audio book in Fantasy once upon a yeah. time. Um, wow, I, I, I can't say congratulations in a big enough way um, that is giving back because those old studios, there's so much history that went on in that room. I mean, mm -hmm. Rumor's probably the biggest record that was ever done there, but a lot well, of Well, Songs in the Key of Life were done there. The wow. first, first Prince album was done there. Huey Lewis. I mean, there was 44 great albums done there. And so, are you guys going to turn into a museum or a working? Well, studio? it's going to be a little bit of a of a give back, a shout out, shout out to Northern California. Yeah. For because Apple was up there and Ampex was up there. Uh, Ampex, if 
if it wasn't for Bing Crosby investing in Ampex, the multi-track may not have been invented. Wow. Would have been a lot later, and so Ampex was in Redwood City. Yeah. And then, uh, so, um, so I just felt that the the there was such great stuff. So we want to make kind of a museum of the Haight Ashbury district. You know, the influence of the hippie rock back in the uh, late '60s, early '70s. Uh, we're going to get the two studios running. Uh, one of the studios I'm going to put back exactly like it was when we did Rumors. That was B. Yeah. And uh, how I'm going to tell people, I said, by the way, we put it back exactly how it was. So I'm going to give them a challenge. If you're as good as me, you can make a sound, a record that sounds like Rumors. Or if you're as good as Stevie Wonder, same thing. And we're gonna, I'm going to try to offer some sort of cash prize. If you can get your record on the top 20, you'll get $25,000 or something. How long do you think it'll take before you can open the doors? Probably about a year. We have we've got to go through the wiring and see if the rats have what they've eaten and the roof needs some work and the air conditioning. The HVAC needs some work. So, do you think um, the band will come up for the grand opening? Sure. Yeah. Uh, do you still talk to Lindsay? Uh, is enough time? I don't. I haven't talked to Lindsay, and I presented him the Les Paul Award in twenty fifteen, maybe twenty fourteen. So if you called him and told him about this, he might fly up for it? Yeah. Okay. Um, make me a promise as another old studio rat that when you're on one of your trips going up there to you know just check on how the construction's going, mm -hmm. give me a shout, let me fly up with you. I want to go see it. Okay. Um, I'm so proud of you for doing it and grateful. Um, as you know, right before we met at the road rally, I was able to fly back to my old homestead uh, right. criteria, and, and none of the rooms are as they were. And it was a little heartbreaking. On one hand, I was just glad to see that they were still open and still making great records, but it was heartbreaking not being able to look at that classic stuff. And you're bringing, you know, it's like uh, what's it, like the Queen Mary, bringing the Queen Mary back to life. Mm -hmm. You know, some things just shouldn't go away. So yeah, they have their, they had they had uh, stained glass. In the ceiling over the console, yeah, has beautiful stained glass, and uh, um, 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 and he was t they took it out, and I'm trying to get it back. Where did um, it go? It went to um, um, I'm going blank on the on the, the two owners. It went to the one of the owner's wives. Oh, okay. And uh, so he's got, but she's asking like twenty five thousand dollars for it because she knows you want it, probably, but. But my so one of my partners says we'll just we'll just you know we have pictures let's make another one replicated. But I, if we can, I'd rather get her. Yeah. Get it from her. Ah, oh, we can call Uncle Vito and send him over to have a talk with her. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anything that we didn't talk about? Uh, oh, you know the one thing we still have five minutes. One and. We have to talk about this. The recording of the song Tusk, when you guys, first of all, how did it come about that you decided to use the USC marching band and tell everybody how the recording of that went? Well, that was a, that was really a completely winging it. Yeah. I mean, we ba barely got that record done. Um, that was, the, the song was a, was a stage riff that, that used to, uh, the band used to warm up with when they were on stage so they 
get the older sound levels for the PAs. Right. And so Lindsay, they, he said, when we were kind of looking around for more stuff, when it was going to be a double record, we decided, well, we could we could find something. And Lindsay said, what about this one? Da, 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 is kind of the riff. Yeah. And so we started building the record. And as I said, there was some uh, um, infant, in, uh, infinite, in, infant, what, is it, what am I trying to So the guys were... An infinite amount of... No, not uh, infant. But they were being infants. Oh. Uh, tusk, you know. Tusk, Ch- get it? Get right. It? Childlike. Yeah. Uh, Whatever that word. Moronically is. boyish. Yeah. What are you talking... I said, well, how, what's... Grow up, you guys. What are you, kids? It has a sexual innuendo for those of you from this generation that don't know. And so then Lindsay started doing all these... Uh, so we making sounds, and then we decided it would be really good to... Interesting to make percussion and we made percussion loops and Mick would do percussion loops, crazy loops and then we would just play them backwards and play them in there just making it, we built it up to be kind of a concophony of sounds and it works incredibly it, well it, it did, yeah and then uh, Mick had this idea that uh, uh, he, I remember he came in one day and said you know, we could actually um, put horns in this thing, a marching band in there and he said uh, and, uh, the bonus on that would be uh, marching bands around the world could oh. could when we go play live they could come in and and you know so we get the city involvement right so we called up somebody called up UC uh, USC and uh, and we had a meeting with them and they said let's do it at Dodger Stadium I'm 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 thinking this is great you know <laughs> I'm gonna pitch some pitch from the Dodger Stadium pitcher mound so so anyway. <laughs> So we went to Dodger Stadium and recorded the the, the USC marching band. And Did then you throw a pitch from the mound? Oh yeah, <laughs> good for you. It's harder than I thought. Yeah, yeah. It does I I've never been on a pro um, ball field before? But yeah, anytime you stand on it, I can't believe how far it is. Mm-hmm. So uh, how hard was it um, capturing the band? I mean, did you use like? You know, a mic on one end of the field, a mic on the other. Didn't you have phase issues with them marching? How'd you solve all that? Well, stuff? I, I mean, we did, we got there, and I somehow we we brought a normal complement of microphones, but we got there, and I said, okay, where are you guys going to stand? Trombones, trumpets, you know, and uh, they're going, well, you know, we don't stand. We're a marching band. <laughs> I said, okay, yeah, yeah, but where where are you going to be? He said, well, we're going to be marching from here to there. I said, well, can't you march in place? No. <laughs> so and I, it just completely astounded me that they had, so they couldn't do that. So we had to send out for shotgun mics, is what we did. Uh. So and then and then another problem we realized is that we didn't we had like seventy five um, uh, orchestra PM members there. Yeah. So we didn't have seventy five headphones, uh. or or enough amp power to power seventy five uh, headphones. So what you do? Run. So we decided to. Get, Again, we're winging this as a, we decided to put the uh, give the uh, conductor, I can't remember his name, the headphones, and so perfect everybody sense. was playing charts. So we just gave it to him, and he would he would use his wand to keep everybody in in line. And it worked. It, well, it worked, but we we had to we had a separate tape machine. We had two tape machines, one playing the track, and then one recording all the marching band on separate twenty four. Wow. So we had to, we actually had to fly it back in when we were mixing, and there's a, a part I can't tell you where it is that I had to 
we realized we started it wrong, and I had to, I twisted the VSO, the speed of the, and you hear the orchestra go, I had to speed up and then down. Just to keep it all on time. Right. But um, it, it just sounded like, you know, it was, it was meant to be. One of my wife's uh, closest friends was actually in the USC marching band and played on that record. Really? Yeah, she loves talking about it. I mean, you guys got to change lives for a bunch of kids. So, yeah. I mean, biggest band in the country, you know? I bet. Wow, how exciting. Um, let's go five minutes longer. Are you okay staying five more minutes? Sure. And we'll take a couple questions from the audience. I have something. All right, Ariana's got some questions. Okay, so Linda Cullen asked, what recording projects are you working on now? Linda Cullen wants to know. Hi, Linda. Uh, what recording Linda. projects are you working on these days? Well, we are doing artist development. Right. Artist Max. By the way, right. I, I should mention, tell them what Artist Max is. And then so we do artist development, which means we young young artists that uh, come to us and we, we, uh, we record them, we teach them, uh, we bring in choreographers, vocal coaches, uh, writing coaches to, to work with them develop the song we have professional musicians come in and build up the track and so um, artist max this is what that's what artist development is yeah and we have a couple artists that we're working with now we're using we're working with a young girl from Russia wow and we helped get her a green card so she can stay here and she sounds like Adele she's amazing wow but anyway she's gonna affect the outcome of the upcoming election <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Something, some news other than coronavirus. Right. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So anyway, so Artist Max started four years ago with when I was, uh, well, even earlier than that one, I was had to uh, f help my daughter get prepared uh -huh. for live stage, and we had to hire these people, and and I saw how they could they affected her, and they were so so good at her bringing yeah. her around, making her a professional. And, 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 and we were spending sometimes $1,000 a day, wow. some of these people. And I realized that that was an important part, but most people can't afford that. So with Artist Max, I would hold a four-day event where people would come in and they would write for two days, and then we would, we would uh, choreograph, yeah. do motion uh, movement exercises and vocal exercises, and, they, uh, and make them, and you'd see the amazing uh, transformation that they would go through. It's like learning to be a golfer. They say you gotta uh, learn how to swing like a uh, uh, like a pro. It's fascinating. People don't think about that side of the business because they think right. it's all about I wrote a hit song. Uh, but well, yeah. it's not. You, it's not about your. It's it's sort of about your vocal, right? Yeah. I mean, but some people some people think if I've got a great voice and a great song, I I'm done. But right. you still have to be you have to be an entertainer. You have to go out there. And you have to be healthy. It's like being an athlete. You have to eat right and sleep right, and 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 you know you have to go out and get up every day and go out there and and be happy and it's and it's training like, for a prize fight. Yeah, people want to see you and they want to they want to listen to you. You have to be likable, and it's a whole thing. You have to have just the right amount of, of package. So that's what Artist Max does, and that's one of the things we're going to be putting at the record plan. Oh, okay. Artist Max, we're going to be looking for auditions. For people who want to start that off, want to be our first guinea pig, so to speak. We should do a TV show. Yeah. Maybe we can do Taxi there. There you go. I'll come up and do Taxi TV with my webcam. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta say, the webcam looks really good in this room today. Uh, we are, by the way, in Kent's studio. Uh, 
sequestered uh, because we're both old enough that we were told to stay home by our governor today. Um, but we are in Southern California in a secret location. Colby's records were made under this roof, right? Yeah, um, the vocals were done, yeah. Okay, and... Uh, Actually, most of them were done in uh, at the village. Oh, where, really? Where we, did the, uh, where we did Tusk. Oh, you did them in D. Okay. No, we didn't do them in D. We did them in... We did them in A, where Steely Dan did theirs. Oh, okay. Wow. One of my all-time favorite bands. Yeah. Um, one more question. On that note, Glenn Lest asks, how did you find producing your daughter's records, and were you able to establish the same discipline as you did with Fleetwood Mac? It's a great question from Glenn Lest. Hello, Glenn. Do you know Glenn actually, he's not a taxi member, but he sent me a really nice thank you note the other day and a gift card for Starbucks, just saying, I watch your show all the time, and I oh, just want to say thank you. Hey, Glenn. Nice so, yeah, I thought that was really sweet of him. So he wants to know if working on Colby's records, um, if you had to bring the, the same sort of discipline to bear with her as you did with Fleetwood Mac. Well, not the same kind of discipline, but, you know, when I decided to uh, do her record, I was really nervous about it because I hadn't done a record in a while. Uh, I had did her first record with the Michael Blue, who's one of the producers here. Right. But I And I thought he bailed out of the second record, and I thought, well, I'll do it. Okay. But then I thought, boy, I hope I'm not too old. I'm going to wreck her career. But, and it was great. I brought in top musicians, and uh, you know, it's just like riding a bike. It's about it's about getting the song right. And she did her vocal coaching, and she did she did a uh, um, um, little choreography. And but she's such a good singer. I you know? I actually saw her at the what used to be the Kauai Songwriters Festival years right. ago. She came out and did uh, one night, I think did three or four songs on stage, and she was pretty magical, I gotta say. Uh, you could feel her, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. She had great stage presence. She's such a sweetheart. She is. Yeah, I talked the, to her afterwards, she's a very nice kid. One of the things I think is great about her, and I t tell a lot of artists, a lot of, a lot of artists sing in too high of a key, Yeah. and then they're up here and their voice is stretched and there's not much room, and Colby gets down here, so her vocal cords are relaxed and she has a little bit more time to, to make the, 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 the notes bend and so she's in a band now right she's yeah. in a band yeah called Gone West that's right um, I remember seeing that somewhere online the other day and, and meant to ask you about that but now they've canceled all their appearances oh, because of the, the virus right well you know this is a great opportunity for all of you who have wanted to spend more time working on your music take advantage of this because it's something nobody could have predicted but now you've got nothing but time probably especially if you have to stay home from work yeah um, write a hit song yeah write a lot of hit songs um i, I want to thank you for doing this you, you know uh, how much i enjoyed reading these books i gotta tell you you should read them both frankly um you could read either one without the other but i, I I probably read them about three weeks apart. This book I started, Ken gave me like a, a pre-production version of it because I wanted to have some material to use for the road rally. And I think I started on a Saturday morning around 7.30 a.m. and read probably two thirds of it that day. I couldn't put it down and then finished it off the next day. You feel like you're in the room. You can smell mm -hmm. the studio. You can feel the tension. It's well, that's not, what I wanted to do. I wanted to yeah. give people the feeling of what what a what a big time record feels like because it's do. very special. 
it's so hard to explain that to somebody that hasn't mm -hmm. been in the room. Maybe I found it so relatable because I have, but I don't think so. I think you just did a really good job of talking about the nuance. That nuance of, it's one thing to sit down and say, you know, I want to roll off 500 hertz on, on this electric guitar or whatever. That's tech talk, and that's great, and there's some of that in the book, but the personalities of this band, what a unique position you were in to work mm -hmm. with a band that was brilliant and manic and productive all at the same time. And making making music. It's, yeah. You know, it's like being in a baseball team, but but more creative and and I said nothing. There's nothing like it when you when you're in a in a really good studio and every instrument's perfect and everybody's creative and and you're making this music that is makes people feel good and it lives on. Yeah, a baseball play will only be recounted by rabid fans that can say, "Remember when you know right. stole second? This is something that everybody loves music and everybody can listen to over and over. And this book. Um, Rumors, making rumors did a really good job of setting everything up. This takes you through the mental meltdown and the precipice of this record not happening, and somehow miraculously it did. Did you sleep for like six months after you finished this record? I think so. <laughs> well, thank you, Ken. Um, I'd shake your hand, but not this week, right. buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Thank you guys for watching the show. Thank um, you, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this as much as I obviously did. You always do a great job. Thank you, Ken. Uh, I, you're my favorite subject, I gotta say. And uh, we will see. Play us out. Yep. See you guys. <laughs> Ironic after talking about a great record, and this is what I'm gonna play. See you guys can next they, week. Can they see uh, it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know it. who's on next week? Robin Frederick. Oh, great. Yeah, Ken produced Robin Frederick. She actually lived in their guest house when Colby was a baby, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Small world. All right, I will see you on a golf course when we can do that again. I will see you guys next week for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Yeah, baby. See you guys.